Before we get started, I need to thank a new Patreon patron. Thank you, Maple Thor, for becoming a patron of the original cast. It is so great to have you on board. I have been informed that these Patreon thank yous are too long, so I'm afraid I don't have time to talk about how intelligent Maple is and what a wonderful person Maple is and how great it is that somebody like Maple can be such a generous and loyal and wonderful listener and how much I hope Maple enjoys listening to the original cast of the movies, which this month is all about Anastasia, the animated film, and, and next month is all about the third in our continuing series on A Star is Born, so I can't talk about any of that. I'm sorry, Maple. All I can do is say thank you and tell people that they should go to patreon.com slash originalcastpod and just like Maple, become a patron of the original cast. So I'm sorry, Maple, that I wasn't able to dedicate the time that I want to dedicate to you in this moment, but I've been informed by the powers that be that these Patreon thank yous are too long. And frankly, I understand what they're saying. Sometimes I have a tendency to ramble on in these sort of situations and, you know, you just sort of sit there listening. Sometimes some of you are hitting that fast forward button, but the real listeners are sitting there going, gosh, I really wish, you know, I'm trapped in my car here and I don't want to pick up my phone and I really just wish he would absolutely stop talking. I wish somebody would come along and just cut him off because it's just it's just really starting to be too much, frankly, and I really wish it would just... Whenever my world falls apart I never lose hope or lose heart Whatever the form of the storm that may brew Not with you to lean on, darlings, you Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is a singer, dancer, actor, writer, advocate, educator. It's Dane Figueroa Aditi, everybody. <laughs> hey. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I was just, you know, before the, the podcast started, I was just saying, you know, it was one of those like busy days and yeah. so... Um, yeah, it's like even after the podcast, I got more work to do, honey. Okay. Really? Oh, okay. <laughs> I do. I do. Yeah. Some emails I need oh. to respond to. <laughs> All right. That's good. I'm glad you set time aside for that. I have to, too, because it's time consuming. I think responding, responding to emails. It is. And I try to, and I try to like, not just, you know, I try not to just send an email where it's mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm like, oh, I'm just responding to the things that you want. I try to like, you know, do a greeting, yeah. do a craft, you know, a sign off, yeah, you know, all exactly. those things. So. Yeah, that's good. That's I very much appreciate that. That's good. <laughs> you know, the art of writing a good email has been lost, Dane. Isn't that just the way? <laughs> I mean, do you remember, do you remember the, but do you remember the world where there were no emails? Remember that? I do. <laughs> I do remember that world. I do. We're not here to talk about email. We're here to talk about... Ain't Misbehaving, the original cast recording. Like Jack Horner in the corner, don't go nowhere, what do I care? Your kisses are worth waiting for, b -b 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 believe me. I don't stay out late, I don't care to go. I'm home about eight, just me and my neighbor's radio, I can't afford hey, one. Hey, I'm saving my love for you, saving my love just for you. Ain't misbehaving, yes. So, how did Ain't Misbehaving come into your life? Oh my gosh! So, so I feel like my first kind of like knowing of it was the was the revival cast, which was the Pointer Sisters. Mm. But my mother actually saw the original cast of ain't misbehaving yeah my mama when she was pregnant with me she saw um dream girls oh yeah wow. yeah <clears throat> so right. we had we had the album you know what i mean like we mm -hmm. had the album mm -hmm. in our house um and i loved now carter growing up like oh, give sure. me a break was one of my favorite favorite shows growing up i think that you know looking back at it now i'm like oh there's like a lot of 
some things that would have to change some of the mm-hmm. jokes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and 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 give me a break. And so I loved Nell Carter. I loved Charlene Woodard. I, I you know, I loved mm-hmm. uh, Amelia McQueen. Uh, those are the three women in the show. Amelia McQueen. Do you remember Amelia McQueen was on Alice in Wonderland? She was the Queen of Hearts, right? Oh, is that right? I believe so. I think oh, she was. Wow. You are correct. I'm, I just just grabbed it. You are correct. And then, yeah. of course, you know Ken Page and uh, Andre DeShields, oh, who just won a Tony. I know, right for Hades Town. So, who is very? I was struck re-listening. I mean, I hadn't listened to this in years, and re-listening to it, I was struck with how um, Hermes he is, Hermes esque yeah. in this recording. Because you know, you've you've heard I've heard him in a in a hundred things, and he's very chameleon like, and you can kind of distinctive voice but he certainly plays char- you know different character every time but in this there were several songs where i thought oh you're gonna bring that back later in in 30 years and win a tony for it <laughs> yeah i mean his you know his character in the show is very much um is very he has that one song called the viper yeah which is which is about weed and uh <laughs> I dreamed about a reefer five feet long, a might immense, but not too strong. A you'll be high, but not for long. If you're a viper. I'm the king of everything. I got to go, got to go, got to go, got to get high before I swing. Let the bells ring, ding dong, ding. If you're a viper. You know, he's a fierce dancer and he, Mm -hmm. um, his character in this is, I mean, they all dance their asses off, but his character in this is like, he's the dancing guy too. Mm -hmm. And very lithe. And he's always been very sort of sinewy and that kind of like, yeah, the physicality that he really brings to it. So having being, I think, more familiar with the show than I am, I, 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 I would, I would ask, I usually ask my guests to summarize the plot. The show doesn't really have a plot per se. No. It does sort of have a kind of drive to it. So do you think you could sort of summarize what happens in Ain't Misbehavin' for those who don't know? Oh gosh, it's five fierce ass black people. Uh, It's a review, which means that, which means that um, typically reviews are one composer right like one composer and or several composers or they take the music of a composer and they make a show out of it and so this show feels to me like it is a uh homage to the 1920s which is of course fats waller's when you know fats waller was big Mm -hmm. and um it's about four black folks essentially talking about love relationship money um, how they are impacted by white supremacy. Um, and commenting on relationships and whatever capacity that is, whether that's relationships with each other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, relationships with the audience, relationships with <laughs> oppression, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. yeah it does really have... And I don't know how much of this was where I was when I first heard the show versus where I am now versus where the world is now, where we're all, you know, a little more attuned to, but it it felt a lot more message heavy this time listening to it than it ever had to before. To me, it was great songs. It's just great fat, Fats Waller songs and the medleys were fun. And there was definitely some rise and flow, like the war, the world war two section and things like that, where I was like, Oh, these songs are all connected. But it did really, I got a lot more out of it, list prepping to, to, to talk to you about it. It, it felt like there's a, a, lot, uh, a lot inside of it that is being highlighted by the way songs are put next to each other to give, create character moments in a real, in a real way. Um, and there's yeah. the fun stuff you love wow. too. But yeah, all that stuff is, is in there. 
Yeah, I think so, right? I mean, I think that also it's 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 having I think some of it feels dated, right? I mm -hmm. think that some of, you know, there are certain jokes inside of it. Like there's, you know, there's a whole song that's fat phobic, right? Mm -hmm. It's a whole song that's fat phobic. Um, and, you know, some other jokes that I don't think if it's revived today, those jokes would, I think those jokes would have to be rewritten, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that the, it, it is, it is, I think that it's having these conversations in a way that in, in some ways also feels um, not obvious unless you are mm -hmm. willing to really um, be clear about what's happening, right? I think about like mean to me, right? That mm -hmm. song is, it's really about, um, in a, it really is about an abusive relationship. Why must you be me to me? Gee, honey, it seems to me you love to see me crying. And I think that in the past, when I was younger, it just was like, oh, why is he being so mean, right? And I think that now that I'm older, I'm like, oh, this is not, this is not all right. Yeah. Um, and the fact that it, that song in particular comes from, you know, one of the women in the show who, um, well, the, all of the women will be considered, quote unquote, strong. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. <laughs> normally in musical theater, you have a new, you have a lady who's normally like the strong woman in the show. Right. But I think that all of them um, are really, they really are aware of who they are from mm -hmm. start to finish. Um, and they're really aware of the systems outside of the piece. But that, you know, to hear that song come from Nell Carter, who I always experienced as like always just having all of her, you know, all of her things together. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I think in the show too, that character of now, um, she just seems, you know, she's, the, she's the, the one who's willing to go to war, right? And, <laughs> and then um, to witness her then sing about this abusive relationship that she's having with this man, mm -hmm. um, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And goes to show a lot why she became from this a star and why she won a Tony for it and why like she has she really does land even on the recording both the fully comedic moments like uh, just a little bit earlier with cash for cash for your trash to like oh yeah coming in later with the song of true you know gravitas um, which is interesting you say that the the women are very strong characters it, it's it's an interesting choice when you choose a composer and performer like Fats Waller. And you're going to put women in the show to sing those songs. They cannot be demure. It the songs don't work in that setting. So it really it's leaning into the material in a great way because I I feel like there is a version of this where they try to put some ingenues in it and it just <laughs> doesn't work. You know, they take everything up a few steps and they sort of like try to turn some songs into you know, sweet ballads and it just wouldn't it just wouldn't work. And I really like the fact that putting it together they're like no these are fats waller songs they're going to be sung like fats waller songs and these are the women we need to sing those songs so here you go <laughs> yeah i mean like i mean the first song in the show is ain't misbehaving mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. where and then ain't nobody's business and which all of them not just the men in the show but also the women in the show talking about affairs and sleeping mm -hmm. around and mm -hmm. <laughs> and being, and you know, and being um, willing to dictate the terms of relationship with them. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's like super refreshing. Like from the very jump of the show, it's like all of these, all of these folks, all of these amazing characters are very clear about the game. <laughs> and each of them play it equally well. Mm-hmm. You know, 
So how did that when you started do? So I mean, you mentioned that you had you had an aunt who sings who's a jazz singer. Yeah, who sung jazz. Um, so music was obviously something that you were surrounded by even from a very very young age. So when you started performing for yourself, more like uh, you know different from like you know, obviously you're young, you find performance opportunities where where you can and whatever kind of children's things you're doing. But when you start to be a little older and doing performance for yourself, you know, high school, college, and that sort of thing. How did you, did, did, did this show with these, these characters and these topics sort of inform the material you were drawn to? Yeah, so when I was in university, mm-hmm. right, like I was, <laughs> we went to the same college. Show. We did, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, my first song for body movement was uh, Mean to Me. And yeah, and part of that was that um, it was jazzy, right? And I've Mm -hmm. always um, leaned more towards even the musical I wrote, right? Mm -hmm. The musical that my first musical that I wrote, um, well, I co-wrote it with, I wrote the book and the lyrics and one of the melodies for one of the melodies for one of the songs and Andrew Morrissey wrote the music. It takes place in the 1920s. And mm. so, like, I think that my, you know, loving this cast recording, of course, growing up with my Aunt Liz, who sang jazz, um, that for me, the thing about jazz is that there was always room to, I don't even want to say improvise, but there was room for you to be able to do the things that I think is kind of thrilling about music, which mm-hmm. is that you never mm-hmm. sing it the same way twice. Um, and so, yeah, so my, so for me personally, like when I was first picking songs that were not classical music, mm-hmm. um, and when I was like picking songs as a young person, Um, I was thrilled by the idea of being able to um, arrange a song a certain way, um, bend notes, right? Riff when I wanted to um, change the note, depending on how I was feeling. So instead of singing it up the octave, right, you sing it down because um, you're trying to really paint the picture not simply with the words and and the melody, but also with what you're doing with your voice. So yeah, it is it is a, a time period that lends itself to that very well too. I think that that does suit the the twenties and thirties, roaring twenties, and sort of then depression era music is this sort of you know it's less sheet music, it's less training, it's more this is the song you heard someone else sing it, you didn't study it, and your interp your inter- your interpretation can be different. And in- but dare I say there. though, right? I think that you said, I think you say like you know less training and less studying, but that's not true, right? Mm. Like I think, you know, when I think about folks when I was young, right? When I before Instagram, before uh, you know YouTube, what I was told by musicians, by older um, older musicians who were brilliant. Is that like you need to get into the club and you need to be singing mm-hmm. jazz, right? And you need to be singing every day. And you need to listen not only to vocalists, but you need to listen to instrumentalists because what you're trying to do is sound like an instrument. Like, so it's like, you know, listen to Coltrane, listen to Dizzy, listen to, you know, um, and then of course you have the singers who everybody tells you listen to Ella Sarah. Billy, um, you know, Carmen McRae and Nancy. And um, so it was one of those things where like the training was the training. I think the education wasn't necessarily what I think white institutions would consider an education, but it was, it was the education to allow you to have the longevity for the, for the for what you wanted and needed to do um and so yeah that was the training for me i remember my aunt said to me when i was young um she said to me when you can sing lush light then you are a jazz musician life is lonely again and only 
last year Everything seems so sure Now life is awful again And so the first time I sang Lush Life, I remember crying, right? Um, because it was like, it was like, oh, I have finally in some way mm-hmm. made it within this jazz world as as being considered a true musician. That's an important distinction. And I think what I, I was, when I said lack, lack of training, I did mean lack of formal training and more training in the, like the 10,000 hours, putting it in the, you know, in the club, do, learning it that way, getting up, doing it, failing, and somebody hopefully telling you this is what you did wrong, you know, like lovingly pushing you forward. Because that's the kind of, I think that, be it singer, writer, whatever, <laughs> that's where you learn things. You know, classes are great. And you and I both studied from Jane Pesci Townsend, who is tremendous <laughs> and is is in every every student she ever had. But not every teacher is like that. Some teachers are much more do it this, you know, my way. And then you go to the next teacher and they're like, no, that way is entirely wrong. You have to do it my <laughs> way. And... <laughs> What I what I always look for, you know hope that students do when I meet young performing students or writing students is that they're they're doing that and that's good to learn different ways of doing things but you're also going out and actually doing it and putting yourself in front of an audience and going that feels good this feels bad why did that work why did you know that's the education that really makes an interesting performer and a good performer and not just the sort of like a rote line of, you know, ingenues and, you know, Anthony's from Sweeney Todd, but just like a good, <laughs> good, colorful variety of performer that makes you go, oh my gosh, like that's somebody I want to see all the time <laughs> doing all kinds of different, different things. So I'm glad you had that, that kind of upbringing and that sort of to get you into performance. Did you feel chafed by that at all when you got into the college experience? I felt, well, I think that my college experience was a little bit different than other folks because I think that my college experience, I really, you know, I, you know, to, I, you know, wanted to play the Nels and wanted to play the, you know, jo- Joanna's and Mrs. Lovett's and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the witches and the uh, <laughs> Cinderella's and the Baker's Wives and, you know, college, mm-hmm. it was, World. It was, you know, early 2000s and um, it was just a very different time. And yes, so, <laughs> you know, I think that certain teachers were pushing me towards a certain repertoire. And mm. that is really where I, I, I will say I did not feel, but I did cabarets, right? So mm-hmm. like, because I had started doing cabarets when I was 15. So how I was able to feel really, really free in those moments um, musically, artistically, was through doing the cabarets. But like, you know, in order to pass my juries, I had to like sing like something from Candor and Ebb, right? right? Like mm-hmm. some man song. And so, <laughs> so that is what I, that's that, you know, where I'm asking the teachers, can you just like, can you actually just like, teach me how to like do the role of the baker's wife. Uh, (laughs) And they're like, no, learn Othello. And I'm like, oh God. God. uh, (laughs) And now look at me now. I'm a, I'm a leading lady. (laughs) The, uh, yeah, gosh, Othello, even for Catholic university, that's a little on the nose, but okay. (laughs) So that, so that, so Mm -hmm. it wasn't necessarily like the, the the vocal just like the oh mm-hmm. it it was it was just the the strictness and the and the you know the transphobia sure <laughs> well and yeah and and in it I mean even the most progressive and open minded teacher at a place like Catholic U in the early two thousands is going to be hemmed in by the 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 environment that we're all in the larger environment um, and so. You, you, the best teacher is capped. You know, you, you can only go so far. Even with a teacher, you'd be like, sure, I'll, all these, whatever you want to sing, whatever you want to do, they're never going to be able to cast you in those parts. Right. Because, right. you know, certain people will get 
upset and that's all we need to say about that but so i stopped is, doing yeah. so i stopped doing shows right like i sure. I, I started working outside of school because and i started just focusing on my cabarets and my later you know my sophomore and junior years um and i think i might maybe i did civil war my junior year but i think my senior year i was working in a bookstore i was planning a cabaret i was doing my senior recital i was writing right i was writing mm -hmm. shows um and writing monologues for other other folks uh mm. uh recitals um because i knew i mean you know growing up in the great blacks and wax museum and having you know the family i had and the aunt that i had you know my aunt always told me that um this you know this idea of education again is that like this the institution right these institutions were not going to really teach me the things um that would be that would really be the most beneficial for me meaning around who i am mm -hmm. right um and so i had always known that some of some of some of that education if not most of it would also have to come from a place that was not institutionalized mm -hmm. i was going to ask how long you've been writing did it start in college oh gosh i've been writing since i was a child oh really yeah yeah i started out with poetry and um my first play well my first play i think i was in elementary school or or middle oh, wow. school and it was um it was a classical piece um i was writing books back then too i used to write these little books and bring them to my friends to read i was like oh i was really big into also rl stein back then so mm -hmm. i was in i was into like uh goosebumps and fear street so i was and you know all these fantasy books and you know all this work and so i would write <laughs> these things and then i'd be like oh i take it to my friends and they'd pass it around and they'd read it and they'd tell me if it was good or not yeah a long time <laughs> what, were, what were your reviews like then were they positive or were they people like the stories i mean you know i was we were all kids right and sure. and and i was writing for i was writing for um the demographic of people who i thought were going to read my books at the time mm. uh, and they were my peers right <laughs> yeah but kids can be mean i'm really i'm really happy that you you knew apparently you knew your audience very well so they were looking for things like that to read that's impressive. I mean, I will say that, you know, perhaps in, in the, uh, perhaps in that time period too, I was a good writer for that time period. You mm -hmm. know, I was a good <laughs> Right. You were hitting the nail right on the head. That's good. That's important. It's a very important thing. So did, but then, then when coming to college and, and feeling the sort of limitations of what you were experiencing, did your writing accelerate? I mean, it sounds like you've been writing almost constantly, like, you know, to quote somebody else like you're running out of time for quite a long time is that <laughs> is that an accurate description oh gosh i don't like that show but um, i know also... you don't <laughs> i will at this point though i want to say we're not going to talk about it because we're not here to talk about it but right. you should go read everything dane's written on hamilton on her twitter feed because it is absolutely worth it <laughs> say that you know given the definition of prolific i have always been prolific mm. um part of it you know part of it is is back when i was younger and you know even now right like having to imagine new worlds having to imagine worlds um in which not not simply in my community or in my you know immediate like loved ones surroundings right like having to imagine worlds in which um you know black trans indigenous uh peoples are loved and affirmed and honored and where people who don't do that um who don't honor and affirm and love uh them are brought to task um, in a way that is super transformative <clears throat> and they're held accountable in a way that feels super transformative. You know, I had to write those things. I always wonder where that comes from because as, as, as somebody who writes a lot as well, it is, it, I'm not 100% sure what the drive is. I just, I, I just write, like that's what I do, you know, it, and it sort of feels wrong not to be doing it. 
So I would imagine that if you added on to that sort of sensation, like you say, this feeling of of otherness and of dreaming of a world that is is better than the one in which we live, and it, it would give you that extra push because I mean, you do your output is 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 tremendous, and uh, it, it is something that. I think is to, I, I find it, I find it fun to chase people like you who are just really, because it's on it. You write a lot. I write a lot. You know, people, writing a lot's easy. People always say, how do you write so much? I just write, just sit down and you do it. It's not that difficult, <laughs> but doing stuff that is poignant and, and, and of the moment, that's the challenge I, as far as I'm concerned. And so I yeah. appreciate, yeah, I think I, that that's important. I, um, I think, you know, I tell my, whenever I teach a workshop or whenever you know, someone is like, oh, can you be my writing mentor? What I say is, is I say, you know, are, are you ready to surrender to the muse, right? So like, mm-hmm. I really believe in this idea that these stories, the, these, um, <clears throat> these, <laughs> these truths, these, these conversations, these mirrors, these worlds are, are, are asking to be born, right? They're asking to be written down. They're asking to be um, observed and thought about and and deconstructed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that really like one just needs to uh, surrender to the muse, right? Um, And allowing for that to just come through you. And so, Part of that is, is, yeah, it's super easy to just sit down and write. Um, but I also, I also always, you know, I'm always also saying like, how expansive are you in your ideas about humanity? Hmm. So when you talk about like, you know, the, the, that they're, you know, that these stories or, or these poems or plays that I write are, are poignant and, um, you know, Nina Simone says an artist must reflect the time. Um, <laughs> you know, they must comment on, they must critique, they must heal, they must, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that's, um, you know, I am also a healer. Mm. And that the writing is one of the ways in which I am uh, gifted from the heavens, right? From my ancestors, from the heavens to do that. Uh, Yeah. Do you find writing for yourself to be challenging or is it even more natural to write when you know you're going to be like for Clemenestra, for example, Uh um, as a piece that you're writing, you're adapting and you're performing in, is it, is it, is it something that you you find is easier to to do to write for yourself and then edit yourself and work the performance and the script of a piece, or is there the added challenge of trying to separate the performer from the writer, something that you you struggle with? Um, I think that you know I I tell folks you know when you are thinking about a director for your piece and you're thinking about a dramaturg, um, really push for and fight for with with institutions that want to produce your work, for dramaturgs and directors who know your work, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and, who, um, and who you trust. And so um, I-, I think that, you know, Clyde Nastra, for example, it was one of those plays in which I was, ha- I wanted to have a conversation about the effects of colonization on Black women. Um, and I also, you know, part of it, I wanted to redeem uh, Clytemnestra because um, what she was really asking for at the end of the day was accountability. Um, and also, you know, when you are growing up and you're an actor and people tell you, you can't play a leading lady, you must then write <laughs> your own way of being mm-hmm. a leading lady. Um, so those three things working together made that happen. I don't find it too hard to edit edit or do rewrites. I think that plays in particular um, and musicals are meant to be performed, right? They're not mm-hmm. just meant to be read. They're meant to be 
um, experienced in the fullness of production. And I think that when you experience the work in the fullness of production, then you're able to really know what works and what does not work. Maybe a costume change at that between those two scenes ain't going to work. <laughs> and is it necessary, right? Mm-hmm. Like, is it, are you just making it difficult for actors just because you can, right? Um, <laughs> and, so, and so for me, it's one of those things where um, it it is not so difficult to do the editing, et cetera. I think that some of the best playwrights are also some of the greatest actors. That's why you do workshops, right? I think that's why you do workshops. And I think that's also why you really, really, really have to be um, in tune with your proxis and your gift, mean Mm -hmm. as an actor, Mm -hmm. meaning that like, there are some things that do not work. And sometimes it's because because your character actually doesn't want to say it Mm -hmm. because it brings up pain. Sometimes it is the writing. <laughs> Sometimes it is the writing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and um, and I think that like, you know, all of this training, quote unquote, is supposed to help us be able to distinguish the two from each other. Another thing that strikes me though for for Clytemnestra is the repurposing of past old stories into their into a modern, more modern attitude. And saying, no, that person got the short shrift. They're not the villain or they're not the whiny one of the story. They are actually right. <laughs> Hang off for a second. And I did want, that made me think, knowing what I know of your work and then listening to Ain't Misbehavin, I was sort of struck by, there is a certain amount of nostalgia in the show. I think a tincture um, and certainly uh, a reverence for Fats Waller as a composer. I mean, is 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 name. He's it. We're not hiding the fact this is a Fats Waller <laughs> show. And I always forget how the show begins. It begins with this quiet, you know, simple start. Not like if you expect a show like this to begin, which would be with a bang. It begins. It eases you in, and it really eases you out in a really beautiful and and gentle way. And but I was also struck by the the, the problem being. Any, I like the fact the show avo- avoids tons of nostalgia because the time period in which it covers is a difficult one. Not that there's ever been an easy one for, for African-Americans, but th- it, this particular time period, you know, up to the war and then immediately after World War II is particularly harrowing. In, and it, it really, to nostalgiaize it, would be disrespectful to Fats Waller, a man who was living through it and you know, reflecting it in, in his work and in the songs he decided to write and sing. And uh, I was struck by it is a show that is conceived and directed by a white guy. <laughs> and I had two, two questions for that. One, my personal, res- uh, my personal thought that I thought for a show written and conceived by, uh, by or conce- I should say, partially conceived and directed by a white guy. It is, it is shockingly not nostalgic for a time period that was fine for, for people who looked like him. But I also wonder how that has aged with you as an artist, as you've started from, oh, it's a, it's a show with all these people in it that I like. And then realizing as you get older, there's somebody behind it who created it and who directed it and who won a Tony for it. And, you know, that person, you know, being not being a person of color. And that is obviously something that we are talking about a lot today, not only telling these stories, but that these stories should be produced and directed and, and created by people of color as well. Um, how does that, does that have a, is that, how does that sit with you as you, as you've gotten older? The Richard I mean, Malpey I, of it all. I would say this is that I think that as we, I think that as we move forward, I don't think a white person should really direct it any longer. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, the, the framework of Ain't Misbehaving is actually rooted in, um, you know, the work of people like Aida Walker, who was a black woman who had her own, um, her own vaudeville troupe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with her husband, uh, and so, um, I think, yeah, I think that we have moved beyond the, 
directing by white folks and <laughs> conceiving by white <laughs> folks of black work. Um, I also I also feel like the thing about the show is that I hmm, how can I say this? I think that what it does do, right? It does play on not necessarily any kind of nostalgia about the era, but it does play on black nostalgia, right? Mm. So, <laughs> and of course we're talking about the eighties, right? So this is not a time right. where we're having the same, well, this is not a time where these conversations are in the mainstream, right? If they sure. were black artists who were being like, you know, having these conversations with institutions, right? Um, but it wasn't necessarily in the main, the mainstream. Um, because of, you know, racism, anti-blackness, misogynoir, sure. et cetera. Um, a system designed to exclude. Yeah, we got it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think that, like, it's it's one of those things where so many of these shows were directed by white folks and or co-written, like Dreamgirls, for example, right? Yeah. Um, and I think what they do is that they actually, they play on our, our the nostalgia of Black people, Meaning like, oh, it, it makes us feel sometimes a certain kind of way or a certain like joy because it's like, oh, Black people slaying right on stage. Yeah. Um, but I think that would an ain't misbehave and work with white folks at the helm now? I don't think so. I mean, like not to bring up Hamilton again, but I think that even when we look at so many of the creative team of Hamilton, right, most of those folks were either white passing people mm -hmm. of color <laughs> and or white. And most of those folks were men. Mm -hmm. And so um, would a show like Hamilton work in 2020? Absolutely not. So, um, you know, I, I kind of said that earlier with Give Me a Break, right? Where it's like, I, I'm watching another show that was from, because you know, UPN shows are all loaded up on Netflix. Yes. Right. And so I'm watching these shows and I'm just like, oh, my gosh, the fat phobia, the ableism, oh the gosh, homophobia. Yeah. Right. And and it's like, ah, gosh, like we grew up watching this stuff. Yeah. Oh, homophobia uh, is like a stock and trade <laughs> of sitcoms through 1980. And like, I mean, well, today uh, it still is. But it, it like it is. That's the thing I keep telling people about when like younger people I meet watch Friends and they discover Friends. I would say, stop watching Friends. It's not a good show. Right. Correct. Like, really pay attention to those jokes. Just, just don't, don't even really pay attention. Just repeat them. Say them back to me now and tell me that you're okay saying that out loud. Right. Correct. It, yeah. It is just such a, it's such a weird phenomenon that you're right, that we grew up with and explains to me if you pay, the good thing about it being on Netflix is you can look at it and go, oh, that's why the, the, the system survived. Because Correct. even in the things that were progressive in quotation marks, they could be progressive in one way, but they couldn't be progressive in another way. They, could, they they had to stay in their lane so that all like the show that it was, you know, majority African-American production still had the range of homophobia to keep the balance almost. And it's this terrible, it's just the, just the self-perpetuation and it keeps rolling and rolling and rolling. And, you know, you get why if you're, if you're paying attention, why a lot of people are not standing it anymore and why it is everyone's, right. you know, maybe a little mad because maybe it's been going on forever. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I just, you know, I want, so I, I, you know, it, it is something that I think that so many of us have to grapple with often as we think, as we think about these things from our childhood that we love, right. And that even you can pop in today and you listen to them mm -hmm. and they are phenomenal performers. Mm -hmm. Like, and and it and it is the music of Fat Swaller, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like, um, I think that is the redeeming qualities of it is that is that not only did it have these incredible performers, but it was the music of a black man who, um, in very many ways, was unapologetically black. Oh, absolutely. Now, I will say that one song that I don't really like in the show. Because I think that it does actually, in very many ways, cater to the white gaze, is black and blue. Just
I think that when I was young, you know, I think it, it, it's a song that makes you feel sad, of course, and it moves you to tears. But, you know, I don't, I do not feel like I need to frame my blackness as, as being the same as whiteness in order for me to demand accountability from white people. Folks could argue that the song isn't trying to do the thing that I'm saying that it's doing, right? But when you get to the root of it, because of the time period that it was written in, how do you, the question was, how do you talk about these things in a way that would somehow activate um, the empathy of oppressive people who were white people. (laughs) And like, and I think that we, I think that now in 2020, right? I mean, this also happened in the 90s, right? Around like um, framing the ways in which kind of like racism was talked about in order to get certain legislation or bills passed. Um, you know, we are all the same. Right, and I don't all see of, color. Know, yeah. right? That's like what this, I grew up right? with, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the not seeing color where it's like, color. Right. that actually erases, right? that er- <laughs> it erases yeah. not only people's identities, not only people's personhood, but it also erases the, the real deep and embedded history of violence racialized violence in this country, or I should say white supremacy in this country. And so, yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, um, is it, it, the question is always, is this doing what we are want, or what we're needing it to do in this moment? Mm-hmm. And dare I say that I think that we're moving beyond when the within the world of musical theater, within the world of theater. Um, we're moving beyond shows that cater to the illusion of white benevolence. Hmm. Well, and also the, the it, it also ties into the idea of what you said a second ago, though, about whether you can interpret this the song the way you interpret it or not the intention versus presentation like the, that may not have been Fats Waller's intention. It may not have been Richard Maltby's intention, but when you line the show up this way and you present it to me, this is how I feel. So whether you intended it or not, here we are. And it's, I think one thing that trips a lot of people up. I mean, you hear this all the time in discussions about all kinds of different things and say, well, no, that's not what I meant. You know, I didn't mean it that way. It's not, it's, I didn't mean to say that. I didn't mean to, you know, you shouldn't be offended because it is meant as a joke. And that doesn't make any difference. <laughs> I always, and I find this easier to teach, to talk to students about when I use it in terms of, I teach a, a class sometimes at American called uh, visual literacy. We talk about signs and symbols and, and what they mean. And it's much easier with a sign or a symbol to say like, they may have intended this to mean one thing, but you look at it and you go, no, that doesn't mean what you you mean it to mean and i always use that opportunity once we have that discussion to get it now think about that in terms of things you say and things that you you do it it, it's all part of a piece and i also think it's 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 also not a right or wrong thing is the author right or the audience right well they're both right this is the point we're having this conversation and one of the great things about pieces of art and especially especially theater is they can be remounted restaged and the meaning can change, the meaning can evolve, the meaning can, I mean, even the phrase black and blue these days means something uh, worlds different. It can, yeah. you know, like, without any, if I just said, I've got a song in this show, it's called black and blue and everybody go, oh, is it about the police? And be like, no, it's, it's about something else. Okay, good, you know, everybody takes a little breath probably, but it is, these phrases move and evolve and change, they, their context changes, but the, the work, I think the quality of work in this show still speaks for itself and it would be all in how it is presented. How is it staged for the audience? What is the audience, how is the audience guided in that moment to feel, to say, this song sits here, it says this, but what can we take from that that's positive? You know, what and dare I say though, right? I, I don't, but dare I say that I, I think, hmm. Not to be shady to any white audience members out there. (laughs) But I think, right, like a friend of mine 
once told me that people pay to go to the theater to see people suffer. Mm. Um, and dare I say, what is the responsibility, once again, of the work to also indict the audience that they are not free from being perpetuators of the violence that the Black people on stage are feeling, mm -hmm. right? Or, or that they experience. And so, like, um, you know, when you talk about, when you, when you said, like, oh, you know, like, Black and Blue, well, we think about it now in this mm -hmm. day and age. I, um, it's when you said, like, oh, people will probably think about the police. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, no, I would think about spousal abuse, right? Like, oh, okay. Um, and, but, um, but I think that when we're talking about, like, the abuse that, that the Black characters are, are, are uh, being a face, faced with, I mean, of course, right, like, that black is they're talking about their identity, the color of their skin, and then blue is talking about them being sad. Mm -hmm. um, the only part of the the song that really like doesn't necessarily sit right with me, right, are the lyrics, um, "I'm white inside," mm -hmm. and I don't think that that is, I don't. That's not true. Why? Right. <laughs> that's not true. Um, <laughs> but I also feel like nine. Mm, I'll give grace. Seven times out of ten, uh -huh. right? An audience member will be like, "Oh, yes, see everyone." What we're be, what we're taught from the system. Okay, mm -hmm. let me break this down. What we're taught from the system is to believe that whiteness is the default, right? And so it isn't what white audiences sometimes leave with from that song or from that the end of the show particularly that song, is not necessarily, oh, I should honor these Black people for being Black, right? They often take from that song, oh, these people are just like me, which then reinforces the idea of white benevolence, mm -hmm. white dominance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like, could you do the show? Also, shows are meant to be, shows are living. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Which means that, like, does, does the show shift with that song out of it? Or does the show shift with different lyrics? Does the show shift with not having those lyrics in it? Mm -hmm. um, does, does the focus then, right, instead of it being a plea what it feels like to be a plea to the audience right to see the humanity of of um these incredible black people who we've laughed with cried with loved on through the whole show but does it actually in fact become a, a song where literally they're just saying the system is abusive and i'm sad and this is your role in it mm -hmm. <laughs> sure I mean, it really, it could go from a song, like you say, that, that lets the audience off the hook. But if you frame the song in a certain way, it can, instead of letting the audience off the hook, put the audience on their heels a little bit and leave them inquisitive, leave them thinking, leave them kind of going, you know, sit in this uncomfortable moment. Now, then what you hope is that they will sit in the uncomfortable moment and reflect on the uncomfortable moment. You often get a certain level of, you know, liberal older white theater goer who goes to the theater thinking, sure, you can hold me accountable. I'm fine. You know, like I am. And then get held accountable and then get very uncomfortable. Very they write a fight. That's why they love Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> they love it because it allows for them, it allows for them to love these quote unquote founding fathers without ever having to grapple with the, with the, the reason why George Floyd was murdered has its roots and the very people who Hamilton celebrates, they chose when they were writing the quote unquote declaration of independence, they chose intentionally to enslave Black people, and to and to really try to limit the rights of and to and to kill indigenous people, 
And so, like, for me, it's one of those things where, like, you know, because, you know, we're talking about black and blue and we're talking about audiences mm-hmm. and we're talking about, it, it, it's like, what's the next part of the conversation? Mm-hmm. You know, what's the next part of the conversation? Are the white folks who hear this, I'm white inside, are the white folks who um, experience work that, experience certain work that caters to the white gaze, are they going to actually feel like it's their responsibility to do the work? And the answer is no. We don't need to, we don't need to ask that anymore because we already have the proof. Because if they were going to do the work, we would not have babies in cages. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor's, Tony McDade's, we, you know, we wouldn't see the transphobia that we see. We wouldn't see the economic violence because some of the people who go to the theater to see these shows are the same people who are making decisions about the lives of black and brown people every day. And so I have chosen in my own work to just center it back on myself, I guess. to be unconcerned with white gaze in my writing and to simply center and celebrate black women like myself, you know, black indigenous, black Latinx, black daughter of an immigrant, black from the ghettos of Baltimore, <laughs> black, tra- black trans, black, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. I, I said this to you in in the email and I wanted to make sure I said it on, on the record for the, the, the podcast that I am so glad you're doing it here um, in this city, in our community, because it needs it. And it is, I think that one thing that we really need our audiences, our white audiences to do is get okay with being uncomfortable um, because it, it is, it's where we are it should be uncomfortable. You know, I don't like being uncomfortable any more than the average human being. In fact, probably a lot less than the average human being. I'm a, I'm a pretty neurotic guy when it comes to that sort of thing. But I also understand, like I, I, I have a life experience and friends who have told me and taken time sometimes to hold my hand and tell me things and I've decided to believe them because I thought they were smart people that has made me look at the world in a different way and gone, so my uncomfortableness isn't the problem and isn't even a tenth of the issue. And so I need to be okay with being uncomfortable in these conversations because that's the deal. So I think we all need to get a little, we, when I say we, I mean, people look like me, get, get comfortable <laughs> with being uncomfortable. And if, you know, if things are said, presented theatrically in conversation that make you uncomfortable, think about why it makes you uncomfortable. You know, don't, you don't need to respond. No one asked you, like, sometimes you're not being asked a question. Something's just being t- told to you. Take it home, sit on it, pray on it, do whatever you need to do with it. Just hold it in your, in your heart for a little while and see if it feels true. And, you know, people, even people who would say they love challenging theater to a certain, of a certain age of a certain time, don't. They, they like theater that agrees with what they think and makes them feel good and, you know, I or doesn't ask them to think, right? Right? Yes. Doesn't demand of them anything beyond what is comfortable for them, right? I told you know, I told someone that someone, <laughs> someone who had a lot of power in a theater. I said to them, I said, you know, when black trans people are were, are born, and and the way that the system is set up now is that the system says that black trans people should not be comfortable. And so, so many Black trans people who we see living, loving themselves, thriving, healing, being fierce, all of these things, right, like, have, have had to learn how to live with, with being told they should not enjoy comfort. And so I'm like, you know, for myself, I'm like, I don't care how the white audience feel. I just don't. Like... <laughs> Because that's, I'm like, it's the only way it's going to get better. <laughs> I'm like, oh, they had to be uncomfortable for an hour and a half right. to two and a half hours. Come on. All right. Oh. <laughs> yeah. 
worry. You don't don't worry about me. I'll be fine. <laughs> Because, because when you leave those, when you leave that theater, right, mm -hmm. there is a system that was designed to attempt to keep you comfortable and not just comfortable, but complacent and complicit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's to the advantage. It's to it's to my advantage to not. And, you know, that's a fact. And we all need to recognize that fact. But I also think it's important, like, I trust you to tell me the truth. You know, that's the thing of it. I have to trust my, 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 my friends, my colleagues, the authors, the presenters, the performers to tell me the truth. And if they're telling me the truth, I have to take that <laughs> as the truth and go, okay, now what? You know, then reconcile that to the, the world that I was born into, raised into, and am encouraged to stay a part of. And, you know, it's, is it uncomfortable again to use the word? Yes, fine. It's uncomfortable, whatever, you know, no, my, I, I can send my kids down the street without worrying about it. I can hang, like you say, I can hang out for 90 minutes and be uncomfortable. It's the, the literal least I can do. So this is where we're at. This is all uncomfortable because if we're not willing to be uncomfortable, we, we all saw what happened, you know, the side effects of that four years ago that we're still living with is you know the side effect of a lot of people not wanting to be uncomfortable about you know like uh, now a whole lot of people are uncomfortable <laughs> baby okay and now expecting for black women to once again save the world mm -hmm. you know what i mean it's mm -hmm. like it's 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 like oh are we just gonna keep doing this every eight years are we just gonna keep you know what i mean because when we were younger there was another there was another Republican president in office mm -hmm. who was who lost the the who lost the popular vote. Mm -hmm. They had to go all the way to the courts, right? Mm -hmm. About like who is the president? We wanted somebody else. And they <laughs> and the Electoral College said, no, mm -hmm. we want this person. And he he literally almost collapsed the economy mm -hmm. of the country that then President Obama had to come through and save the economy. And now here we are again. And mm -hmm. so, you know, here we are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what um as we wrap up though, I always like to ask, what's your favorite song in the show? What's my favorite song in the show? Oh my goodness. How dare you just want me to pick one? <laughs> um, I think that, um, uh, um, I'm flying high, but I've got a feeling I'm falling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's That's a great one. Oh, yeah. that's a really, really good one. Uh, thank you so much, Dane. This was so such a lovely conversation. Where can people find out what you're doing and keep up with you? Oh my gosh. Okay. So folks can go to um, my website. It needs to be updated, so don't be shady. Um, <laughs> um, www.ladydanefe.com. Um, you know, Lady Dane, F is in Figueroa, E is in Aditi.com. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if you would like to follow me on Instagram, um, you can follow me there at Lady Dane. Um, <clears throat> you can follow me now. My Twitter be on and popping, y'all. I was gonna say, not for so the faint like, of heart, but I, ha <laughs> but, but I do recommend my Twitter is real political, so mm -hmm. you can follow me on Twitter at the Lady Dane. Someone had taken Lady Dane already, so uh, <laughs> really, yeah. Well, you're the Lady Dane. Yeah, the Lady the. Jane. Yes. Uh, T H E Lady Jane. <laughs> and uh, yes, my my now my Instagram also gets very political. Yeah. So so just please know pictures. It. Right. There's pictures. <laughs> I'll jump right through 
The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. The original cast is on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at OriginalCastPod. You can follow me, Patrick Flynn, on all platforms at UnknownPenguin. Enjoying yourself? Leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and tell the world. You can also find the original cast on Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, and wherever fine podcasts are available. My thanks to Dan Figaro Aditi for coming and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. I used to try.